to uh, First Samuel. I'm sorry, Second Samuel. We're in Second Samuel tonight. We got some loner Bibles in the back. If you don't have a Bible and you want to uh, just grab one off that back table, and that way you can um, follow along with us. We're ready for First Second Samuel chapter seven uh, tonight. So. You know, I want to um, encourage us as a as a family of faith in that, um, you know, what what we do and who we are as, as Christ followers and, and why we come to church. You know, we never want to lose vision. We never want to get in a habit of um, going through the motions. And, you know, for me personally, one of the things that I've, I ask God for all the time and, and you know, I'm, I'm constantly seeking the Lord for a particular area of my life in that, I you know, because I see it happen, I think, in, in other places and and, and, and in other scenarios and, you know, not even to judge what's happening in other places. I don't ever want to be guilty of that, but I, I, I never want to just go through the motions in my walk with Christ. You know, I, I don't want to just, just, I don't ever want to get to the point where church becomes something that, you know, I go through the motions on Sunday and we get through Wednesday and we get through Sunday and we, you know, it's just part of a check in the box that, that we do as Christ followers, as Christians. And, um, you know, that, that every one of our, our gatherings, our experiences, that there's meaning in them and that there's a desire for each one of us to, to draw near to God. And, and, you know, I think what we lose a little bit um, in, in our day-to-day lives and in our walk with God is something that we can constantly be reminded of, something that um, if we're constantly reminded and live by, it'll change how we live. And it's, part of it is, is the awe factor of God. The awe factor of God is this overwhelming um, response when you realize the truth from God's word, when you realize that that the God of heaven, the creator of the of the stars, we call him the star breathing God, because the Bible says that with the word, he spoke the universe into existence. The Bible says that with the span of his hand, a span is between your thumb and your pinky, that God measures the universe with the span of his hand. That's a big God. You know, that's a God who who in every right, because he's God, you know, he can do what he wants. You know, it's kind of um, it, it, it doesn't make sense, really, for anybody to try to judge God on, on, mor- on morals or decisions that he's made or things that he's done. He's God. He can do whatever he wants, however he wants. He's God. And, and yet, God of heaven, the star-breathing God, the creator of the earth, the universe, and all that's in him, a God who has a, a, a heaven to, to bring us to and a, and a hell for folks that don't want to go, has invited each one of us into personal relationship. He says that, that, I, that I've counted the number of hairs that are on your head. Now, now is there, is there a, a value in God counting the number of hairs on your head? I mean, the value is in him telling you that, that he cares so much that, that he, he makes meticulous details about your life. God says in Jeremiah 29, 11, he says, I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts for good and not for evil. And then Isaiah also tells us, or Isaiah tells us that if, if, if the thoughts that God has for you were numbered, they would number more than the sands of the seashore. So a mathematician did the, the math on, on the estimated number of grains of sand on the seashore. And, you know, of course, it's a big, big number. But what that number equates to is if, if what Isaiah says, that the number of God's thoughts towards you, number is the sand of the seashore. And then, and then um, Jeremiah tells us that the thoughts that he has are good thoughts. It means that God thinks good thoughts about you as numerous as the sand is on the seashore. And what the mathematician came up with is that in an average lifetime, that, that, that equals seven thoughts per second in your life. So every, um, every second, God thinks seven good thoughts about your life, about you, about who you are. And, and this is part of the awe factor of God, just, just to think of who we are. And, you know, and, and to be able to respond in a genuine way with God and, and to God and that, you know, as we gather again, that as we, you know, we, we, we live life, that the purpose of our gathering, the purpose of our, you know, not only when we gather, but the purpose of our walk, the purpose of our life and is, is to connect, is, is to have relationship, is to worship and, and to respond to the, the awe factor of God. And, and so just encouraging us. And again, you know, one of the things that, um, I've been praying about lately and, you know, I don't really have an answer yet and more, more questions and answers, but, you know, part, part of something that, that I do personally that we do is, is, you know, we, we want to, first of all, is this, we, we have to be, um, a church that, that's, that's missional, that we're on mission, every one of us. Okay. And so in the book of revelation in chapter two and three, Jesus writes seven letters 
churches, and every one of them is a report card. And in the report card, he praises some, and he, he gets after others and corrects others. And, and so, but I mean, it would be an amazing thing if God would write us here in Tooele a report card. We would love that, right? We could get an A, B, C, D, F, G grade, and we could, um, is G a grade? No, but um, grade or good, that's my grade. But, um, but we, we could make adjustments. We could, we could fix some weaknesses. We could, we could you know, continue to do some things that, 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 that we do well. Um, and, and so, you know, wanting to, 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 to really do the things that, that God wants us to do as a church and as a people, you know. And so we, we, we every week on, you know, being missional, that's what I'm talking about, is that, that we have this vision that part of your, your life as a Christian is to tell other people about Jesus. That's what missional means. Now, missional doesn't mean that you have to go and move to Africa and be a, a full-time missionary in a foreign country. That's not, I mean, that's good. But in the book of Revelation, in those report cards that Jesus writes, the church of Philadelphia is the only, of the seven, only one of the seven churches that, has, that Jesus has nothing negative to say about them. Only positive all the way through. So obviously, if we're looking at the seven report cards, the Church of Philadelphia is the one that we want to emulate, right? It's the one that we want to be like the most because Jesus has nothing negative to say about them. And, and the biggest two compliments that Jesus makes about the Church of Philadelphia, number one, this is the church, Philadelphia, that kept his word. And we want to be a church and we make a big deal about being the church, being a church that um, keeps the word of God. Meaning whether, whether the word of God is popular culturally or, or whether it makes sense or whether people like it or not, that we stick to what the word of God says. We never fall into the trap that the Bible is, um, is irrelevant and it's old and it's an ancient document and, and that God needs to be brought up to speed on, on some of the cultural norms of our day. And that where the Bible doesn't fit some of the cult- cultural um, trends, that, that we don't change what we believe the Bible teaches, that we're, we're true to the word of God. And, and the church in Philadelphia, they kept God's word. And so obviously we always put that as a, as a forefront in, in what we do as a church is that we want to be a people that keep God's word. And we want, um, you know, we want to follow and live by God's word. And the second thing that the church of Philadelphia gets a, 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 um, a, a good comment on is that they're, they're the mission-minded church. And so I think have all processed that um, as they're a church. And, and I think as a whole, you know, um, Calvary Chapel does a, does a really good job globally. And, and, I, and I would be, I don't know, just my that that we're, we're pretty good in the area of, of foreign missions and sending missionaries all over the world and the missions that we support and that we're a part of. And we, we've always taken that from the book of Revelation, from the Church of Philadelphia, as, as a second part of um, something that's very important for us as a people is that we're missional, we're mission-minded. And, and I've kind of always processed that as, again, that we're, we're sending, we're, we're doing foreign missions, we're doing stuff in other places. But I think it's more than that. And I think importantly what I want to encourage us and stress and what I've been trying to stress to the, the men in discipleship classes that being missional, it, 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 it does include going on foreign missions. And, and whether you're one that's called to go or whether you're one that's called to support those that go, we need both for it to work. And the reward is the same whether you go or whether you support those that go. Um, but, but that missional is more than just going on foreign mission fields. What that means is that every one of us as Christ followers understand that we have a responsibility to share our faith. That part of your, 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 your call of God is to be missional, is to, um, you know, share in your faith, telling people about Jesus, leading people to making disciples, leading people to Jesus. You know, the, the Great Commission, everybody knows what the Great Commission is? Last thing Jesus said to the disciples in, uh, in Matthew's Gospel, Go ye therefore into all the world, making disciples of every tribe, nation, tongue, and peoples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that I, that I taught you. And so the Great Commission is for us to go. And again, in the Great Commission, you, you still get that idea that, that, that being missional means that you have to go, which you... Whether you go next door or whether you go to work or whether you go to Africa, I think it applies that, that, that it's intrinsic in us that, that we're meant to share the gospel. You guys following that? You agree with that? That, that part of who you are? Now, I think what happens, right, is that we think that the, the, ch- that the church specifically is responsible for being missional and the pastors and the missionaries and the leaders, it's their 
um, requirement to be the ones that God called to share the gospel. And um, that, that's just not the case. You know, I'm a Christ follower and I'm a Christian before I'm a pastor. You know, the fact that I'm a pastor doesn't make any difference than if, you know, you're a Christian and a Christ follower and then a painter next. That, that, that's irrelevant, that, that we're called as Christ followers to be a people that are missional. It's something that God requires and expects of each one of us. And so, you know, one of the things I think that happens in church, and, and again, this is the part where I said I have more um, questions than answers, you know, right now. And I never, I never want to, um, I'm reading a book right now, and, um, and, and in this book, the, the writer is challenging us on some ways we do church and ha- how, trying to challenge us to see some things a little bit differently and um, identify some things that, in his opinion, are, you know, broken in the church and other things we do well. And, and, and so I'm just processing. I'm using it as a mirror to, you know, see who I am, who we are. And, you know, these books come across the across the pastor's desk, you know, every all the time. You know, I've been a pastor 22 years now and you know, it's been every year, multiple books. And every time I, I get into one or I read one, I'm always careful that, that, I, can, that I can eat the meat and spit out the bones. And, the, and that it, it never, it can't change the DNA of who I am. You know, the only thing that should change the DNA of who I am is the Word of God or something I discover or find or is revealed through the Word of God. But, but, I, but I do think we take these things. And one of the challenges in, in the book that, that I'm considering right now or just praying about, and I wanted to share with you guys was, you know, every Sunday at the end of service, we do a thing called the sinner's prayer. Now, everybody's all over the spectrum on the idea of, of the sinner's prayer. Now, I, I never want to, you know, that's, that's, that's right who we are. And we, 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 what are we doing if we're not giving people an opportunity to respond? So the sinner's prayer is the avenue, it's, it's the vehicle that we use for people to, to place their faith in Jesus Christ. Okay. But, but saying the sinner's prayer, does that save you? Do the words of that prayer, do they work like magic? And if you say them over your life, that, then you go to heaven. Is that how it works? Absolutely not, right? The sinner's prayer, um, if you say the sinner's prayer and it's a, it's a true reflection of what's going on in your heart and who you are, then does it save you? Yes, that's, that's the point, right? Because it's a condition of full surrender of your heart and life to the Lord Jesus Christ. You can say the sinner's prayer with your lips, but if in your heart you say, God, I, I, I don't want to go to hell, or I believe some of these things, or I'm moved emotionally, but I'm not fully prepared to trust you with every part of my life, and, and you say the sinner's prayer, nothing happened in your heart and life. Because, because to believe, to trust and believe is to believe at all. It's to, the, the issue of salvation is, is a full surrender. But, you know, what, what I think happens or could happen maybe to some folks is, and we don't ever want to be guilty of a bait and switch type of thing, you know, and that's kind of where I am with it. And I don't think we'll ever change from giving people the opportunity, but making sure that we, um, that everybody understands something. The sinner's prayer is only the beginning. It, it's not the end all be all. It, it is just the, the first step. And, 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 and the call of God, you know, the Bible never anywhere says for us to go and make believers. The Bible says for us to go and make disciples and being a disciple of Jesus Christ. There's a cost that's involved and it's a high cost. But, but, you know, if you, if you, you, you know, people have the idea and in some places and in some churches, what's very popular over the last 20 years is what, what's called a seeker friendly model of church. And they're afraid that if they if they tell you the cost of discipleship, that that they'll scare you away. But then what's happening is that that folks are saying the sinner's prayer and they're they're believing that they just get to, you know, go to heaven and be a Christian and and they can continue to live their lives the the way that they've always lived them. And there's going to be no change. There's going to be no buy in on their part. It's not going to affect the other areas of their lives that they're not willing to give up or change or see God move in. And, and then they, or that, 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 that becoming a Christ follower means that you're going to have an easy life. And, and, and that's, again, you know, you know our biggest um, complaint, the biggest kind of um, deception that's out there among the cults and among other um, cults, period, isms, schisms, things that are out there, ideas that are out there, is the whole bait and switch idea. Like, you know, the, the unfortunate thing is, the truth is, and I'm, you know, I don't say this very bluntly very often. I'm usually very careful how I say these things. But it's Wednesday night and I'm not being careful tonight. 
the, um, you know, the Mormon missionaries, they don't come to your door and knock on your door and tell you that Jesus is the spirit brother of Satan and that Joseph Smith had 35 wives and some of them were underage and that you're going to go to heaven and, and if your wife is good enough, you get to call her up and you're going to be a God in heaven and have multiple, um, have lots of wives and, and repopulate planets. They come to your door and knock on the door and tell you that. You know, you find that stuff out later as you get higher and higher up. Now, I picked on the Mormons, but honestly, I could pick on anybody. You know, it's the same within the, the, the Masonic Lodge. The Masonic Lodge is built around, thir- is it 33? 33 degrees of masonry and a 33rd degree mason. But when you're a first degree mason and you come and you think it's the Elks Lodge and you sign up and you become a part, they, they give you a little bit. And then as you get deeper and deeper and more and more in it and trapped and stuff, they begin to reveal more and more um, stuff to you that had they told you on day one, you would have ran kicking and screaming like, this is crazy. I'm not a part of this, you know, and same thing with the missionaries, the more missionaries. How, how, do, if they came to your door two by two and knocked on your door and laid it all out for you on day one to consider, you probably wouldn't, you know, want to, to, so you, you might feel like there was a bait and switch that went on or there was like, you know, Jim Jones. How many of you guys are familiar with Jim Jones? Jim Jones was the guy who um, started a church in Northern California and um, things were going swimmingly and progressively and progressively more like a cult. And what Jim Jones did was he told his followers that Jesus was coming and that they needed to go and to prepare and live a life um, getting ready for the return of Jesus Christ. And he bought... Um, I don't know how many acres, 100 acres in South America somewhere in a ranch, and that he he was in that the church was going to move from California. He was going to fly all the people down to this ranch in 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 South America somewhere. There together, according to the will of God, under His direction, waiting for the. There called it Jonestown. He did when they first got there was he took ports and did changing and he more and more that this guy was a whack job and what one of the the marks of the cults i don't care whether it's um david koresh in waco texas if it's jim jones if it's whoever it is you seem to find these these identifying markers well one of the things that jim jones did take a while yes he he said that he was the only one in jonestown that was allowed to have sex with the women Oh, that's unique. That, that's original. Right? And, and somehow it turns out, you know, whether it's, again, it's Jeffrey's down in, in wherever he's at. He's in prison now. But the same, same identifying factor in so many of these different cult things that went wrong. You know, the same thing was happening in Waco, Texas with um, David Koresh before, you know, the ATF and the FBI raided and things went south. But, but Jim... word out to the United States and to their and their family and so which is probably would never happen today you know you know you're in the 70s when um, a United States senator flies down to what's going on down there and he gets down there and, and of course Jim Jones and the, the group that they're show and, 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 and try to make it look as good as it can for the senator so that he'll go back and think everything's okay. Well, as the senator's there on it, having to see some of the things going on and, and cultish, and so the senator makes it all the way to the airport where his private plane is waiting for him, and he's ready to board his private plane. He orders some of his men um, with high-powered rifles to position outside the airport, and as he's getting ready to get on his plane, they gun the senator down and they kill him there in South America. And so when that word gets back to the United States, they know it's only a matter of time. States, whatever. He, he basically at that point realized that he had lost the power and the control over all these people. And so he, he demanded um, that he, he laced the...
the cyanide-laced poison first, and then they were supposed to drink it themselves. Some, some refused to do it, and David Koresh ordered again that, that his guards and his, his, his upper echelon military guys shot and killed some of the members. So when we got there, we found 800 or so bodies that had been died from the cyanide poison and another 50, 70 that were shot to death, including Jim Jones himself, who didn't want to die by drinking the potion. And so he had the guy shoot him and then shoot himself. And, um, but again, that's kind of a long story. Cut into the story. It was kind of to tell you the story. But the point of the story was, again, what happened to those people was they didn't realize the extent of, of what they bought into until it was too late. And I'm sure they had felt, you know, this dupe and this trick that goes on. Now, are we as a church, you know, I'm asking myself, are we, are we doing that? Am I doing that? Are we doing that by, um, you know, do, do you feel like, you know, I came to church, I asked Jesus in my heart and, you know, pastor didn't tell me until months later that, you know, I didn't, you know, one guy put it in the book, he puts it this way that, you know, somebody said it was like being, being gifted a pair of, ro- of ice skates and the ice skates were intended to, you know, skate around the rink and, and, and do twirls and have fun and enjoy their new life in Christ. And, and, and that was all good. And then after they got all fun and had all kinds of fun on their roller skate, on their ice skates, then, then everything switched. And they said, well, we gave you the skates, but actually what the, the skates were is because you have to be on the hockey team. And you got to score goals, and you got to be productive, and you got to do this, and you got to do that. And you're like, well, now all of a sudden I'm being told that I don't just get to skate around and have fun; that I um, I have to be on the team and score goals, you know. But as I look at it biblically, again, so just just making sure, I think this is kind of how I'm going to solve it personally. How we solve it is making sure that, that that the preaching that we do, the teaching that we do, without throwing out the DNA of who we are, without giving people an opportunity to respond, because you can't make a disciple until they're first what? You're not sure? Until they're saved, until they're a believer. You can't make a disciple until they've become a believer. So, you know, you you, you have to start somewhere. You, you know, in the Philippian jailer, um, when, when, the, when the prison fell down and the, and the earthquake happened, the, door, the prison didn't fall down, the doors opened up. And the Philippian jailer, do you remember the story? Philippian jailer in the book of Acts um, in Philippi where the book of the Philippians was written to. Paul and Silas are there and they're praising and singing songs in chains at midnight and an earthquake. The doors opens up by themselves and all the prisoners are set free. And the Philippian jailer takes his knife and he puts it in his stomach and he's going to kill himself because if the prisoners escape, he then has to live out their sentences. For anybody that was under his care that he let go or didn't, then they give them, the guards, prisoners. And so he was done, all these prisoners. And Paul says, stop. We're all here. Nobody's leaving. Don't kill yourself. And the Philippian jailer asks a very important question. Very simple question we all want to know the answer to, right? He says, what must I do to be saved? Now, at that point, you would think that if, if, if Paul doesn't want to be guilty of the whole bait and switch thing, he would start to lay out for him the cost of discipleship. That, that there's a cost in discipleship. And you have to give all and you can't be part of the way in. But is that what Paul does? No. What does Paul tell the Philippian jailer? He says, trust and believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Just gives him a simple plan of salvation. Hey, this is what you do to get saved. Think of jailer as he got into the word as the spirit of god began to move in his life that he realized that there was a cost of discipleship absolutely you know the um so again we we i I think we just have to do both right we have to give people an opportunity to initially respond and it's biblical we see it all throughout the bible in 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 the book of acts that question peter and the men say to peter what must we do to be saved and peter gives a very similar answer not i Peter says to, to repent and Jesus. separate the idea of repentance with repent to be saved. You have to ask God to forgive you. Repentance means to agree with that, that those things are, are, are sin against him, that they're, they're against, they're, they, they break the, 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 um, the heart of God. And so I repent, I turn. 
I know that they're destructive for me and they're against God. And so Peter for Jesus. And then as you, you begin to grow, right, there, there becomes as with anything. You know, and even Jesus himself, in, in John's gospel, um, Jesus says this. He says, there are many things that I want to tell you, but you're not ready yet to receive them. And he's talking to Peter. And again, you know, what, what eventually you could tell Peter was that Peter was going to die a miserable death, a brutal death as a Christ follower. And, 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 and even Jesus himself, you know, understood that, 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 that part of maturing as a Christian and part of it is baby steps or is being able to have a season to, to be able to receive some of the things that God wants to tell you, that God wants to speak to your heart. And, and again, you know, for the critics who say that we're, you know, we're guilty of bait and switch, I, I, you know, it's not the case unless, right, unless we're not also telling the, that there's a cost of discipleship. And again, my, my heart for us tonight, my heart of what I want to share with us tonight is a, on our Wednesday night, our family night, is just that, that you know, I want you guys to all understand there, there, is, a, there is a buy-in. There is a cost. And, and it's not, you know, um, been, been watching God work in, Dan, in Dan's life here. And God's just been doing an amazing work in his life and seeing him grow. And, you know, Dan came here, I don't know, it's been two, three years ago now. And, um, you know, and, and he just, he said he sat in the back when he came and was trying to find out what was wrong with the church so he didn't have to ever come back again. You know, that was his attitude when he first came, you know. And, um, and it, you know, he thought this was one of those snake charmer churches. And, you know, and, and, and I can remember when he came, he's kind of an intimidating guy, you know, he's a big guy, big beard, and looks kind of mean until you get to know him, you know, and, um, and I don't know, I don't know how he was taking it or what God was doing, but God began to do a work in his life, you know, and God began to, began to, you know, call him and draw him, and now just to see him growing in Christ and receiving and um, really, really letting God do that work in his life to where he's becoming a disciple and he's growing, and, and there's that season. We had another guy who was coming for a while, and, um, you know, when he first came, he just left another church, and um, and and his wife was coming here for a while before he got here, and and his, his last church experience, in, in his opinion, was was not a great experience, and he he stopped going, but not because the teaching was bad, the worship was bad, the church was bad, and nothing to do with the church itself, except for that the pastor told him he had to tithe ten percent. That's a biblical principle, and as a part of doing your part of a church, you have to tithe, and he said to me. Well, that's a truck payment. I'm not doing that. And he stopped going to church. And then and then his wife switched churches and she started coming here. And eventually, after a long period of time or however long it was, she she convinced him to come and try our church out. And so he came kind of like Dan did the first when he first got here. He sat in the back and waiting to see what was wrong so he could leave and not come back. And um, and, and so, you know, I was talking to him, I was getting to know him. And um, he asked me about what this pastor told him. It's at the church. And he said, do I have to tithe to come to church here? And I said, absolutely not. And and do I believe that, do I believe in tithing? Do I believe in giving? Do I believe in generosity? Absolutely. Do I believe it's a biblical principle that's for your benefit? Absolutely. Do I believe that his life would be better if he tithed and gave? Absolutely. But what is the deal? Do I believe he should tithe? Yes. Then why would I tell him, no, you don't have to tithe to come to church here? Well, first of all, because you don't have to tithe to come to church here. You're welcome to come here whether you give a penny or you don't. You're welcome. And it doesn't matter. But it's for your benefit. But here's the deal. He, he started coming. And because I didn't put some undue pressure on him that he wasn't yet ready to receive, like Jesus said, I have many things to tell you, but you're not yet ready to receive them. And had I, had I told him, yeah, yeah, that's a part of church. That's a part of life. That's a part of being a Christ follower left here and never come back and who knows what would happen in his life but but i understood that that if god spoke to his heart or when god began to to convict him or god began to put something on his heart it would change so but he felt comfortable enough anyways to stay and and hear the word of god And, and then he kept coming and kept coming he was here every week with his wife and about nine months later guess what he started doing (laughs) he started diving (laughs) and it was like but Again, the point, the point was just that, that God, he needed a season to, to, he just wasn't there. He wasn't, he, you know, it's like he, you, can't, you can't expect somebody who's a baby to, you know, run, run, a, run a, around a track and jump over hurdles. 
You know, but an adult, a 16-year-old, a 15-year-old, 14-year-old, 20-year-old, then okay, you're in a different season. You can run, you can jump. But, but when you're a baby in Christ, there's, it's okay. And God doesn't expect you to run and jump hurdles when you're a baby in Christ, right? It's okay to be in a season of, of being a baby. The only thing that's not okay is, is when you're 20 to still be sucking on a bottle, is, is, is to never get any maturity. And I think that's really, honestly, I think if, if we're evaluating and we're self-evaluating and we're looking ourselves in the mirror, I, I think one of the marks of, of, a, you know, of, of us doing it well or doing it better is that the people that are coming, the people that, that God's getting a hold of their lives, that over seasons they're maturing. And, and if we're not seeing personal growth in individuals' lives as, as a church, then, then we have a problem. You know, smoking, for example. You know, people stand in the parking lot after church and smoke, and I get all kinds of flack for it. No, you know, especially, you know, because some of our neighbors don't understand how you could smoke and be a, be a Christ follower. You know, they don't get it. In their church, you don't smoke and you don't drink. It's real obvious. And so, you know, we get all kinds of flack over it. And it, it gives us a, in their mind, you know, it makes us a certain type of, you know, really liberal, loose, you know, church and but again if people the same people right or you know 10 years later or if they're still out there doing those things a lot along later then, then there's an issue right because but we we definitely want to be a place where we're a hospital for the sick and that regardless of where your 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 walk is in christ that you're welcome here we want you to be welcome here and loved here um, whether you're you're a Democrat or a Republican, whether you're a new believer or a seasoned believer, whether you you know you where, wherever you fit on eschatology, whether you agree with my eschatology and end time scenario, or you have a different one, it, th- those are things that we 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 want to. Those are not separating issues or, or things that that create disfellowship. You know, things that create disfellowship are issues like who who Jesus is, how do you get to heaven, you know, whether the fact that. You know, what our theology is on on speaking in tongues, that's not a separating issue. It doesn't, whether you, you know, you see it that way or not, it, it doesn't separate who we are. And again, we want to be a place where everybody, regardless of where you're, you're, you are on those parts of, of life, that you're welcome and you're loved and you, and you have an opportunity to be here long enough for God to begin to work in your heart. And that's exactly what happened to that, that guy I just gave the story about. You know, he just stuck around long enough and God started working in his heart and he grew in the Lord. He started reading his Bible for himself, and he came to a place where God spoke to his heart um, and gave him a freedom of of of, of giving, of, of of tithing, of being a part of, and and that it wasn't required, and it wasn't something that he had to do to go to heaven, but it got to the point where it was something that he wanted to do. He wanted to do it, and so, um, you know, and again, what what I'm talking about in context, I don't want to lose the context of what we're talking about. We're talking about the cost of discipleship. We're talking about sending two messages to a church. You know, yeah, ask Jesus in your heart. And I think, again, I, I think the only qualifying, you know, thing that I, you know, in reflect of looking in the mirror and, 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 and reading this book I'm reading is just that we're, we're clear. And I just have to be clear with everybody. And, and it's as simple as this, that asking Jesus in your heart is necessary and important and, and we'll continue to always give the opportunity as long as it comes right with the message that that's only the first step. That's only the first step, that, that there's, there's, there's a cost of discipleship. You know, and, and I've, I've told you guys this one for years, you know, irregardless of this book that I'm reading right now, that, um, that I never want to be guilty of selling um, a, a cheap grace because that's what's happening in a lot of churches and a lot of places. So it's really popular right now. It's what's filled up a lot of churches. Some of the biggest churches in America um, preach a cheap grace, which means that that you you can receive the the salvation and the grace of God with with no buy-in and no cost of your own, no no commitment of your own. That it's just God's free gift to you. You don't have to doesn't affect your life in any other way, and and there's no real cost of being a Christ follower. And I never want to be guilty of. Um, you know, every once in a while, uh, somebody will ask me, you know, for recommendations for, for Christian books or books that I've read. And, and to be 100% honest, I think the, the best book I've ever read in my life as a, as a Christian, apart from the Bible, of course, right? Supplemental reading is, is a book by, by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and it's called The Cost of Discipleship. 
and and it just really does an amazing job of battling and arguing between kind of what we're seeing that's that's a black eye and a and really a, I think it dishonors God is this this cheap grace that we sell and and it's more detrimental than it is help you know we think we're helping people and we want to love people and we we don't want to scare people away and we're afraid to tell people you know that that there's a there's a real cost in becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ you know and if we ever you know and, and then obviously the glaring 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 black eye the church in America today or in the world really because it's, it's traveled all over the world is the prosperity gospel because the prosperity gospel says that God wants you to be happy healthy and wealthy and, and that's just the, the lie from the pit of hell the truth is as a Christ follower you're going to suffer trials and tribulation you're going to go through suffering you're going to face difficult things in your life and 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 if, if you don't think that's true all you have to do is show me one person in the Bible who didn't suffer for the name for the name of God, who 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 lived a life that was happy, healthy, and wealthy. Show me one person in the Bible who lived a life that was happy, healthy, wealthy. And and if the very characters of the Bible that were the closest couldn't find a life of being happy, healthy, wealthy, well then I'm pretty sure it's not God's will for you to be happy, healthy, wealthy. It's not. Um, it's not easier, but better. That's a quote I got from Dan in, in, in his um, growing in Christ and some things that he was facing as a Christ follower and suffering and the buy-in and the cost of discipleship. And he shared with our men's group the other day and a couple of weeks ago that, you know, it's, it's, it's not easier, but better. And that's just the truth. Because, again, I also Christ follower. Oh, it's so hard and you suffer so much and. You know that that's not the truth either. Either that 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 yes, there is suffering. I mean, you know, it, it, you can't you can't read the New Testament because over and over and over and over and over again, God warns, God promises, God says that you will suffer persecution. You will suffer. You will go through things. But a lot of those things that God is doing in suffering and in trials is He says there's a purpose in it. He's refining character. He's building. He's He's doing something. And then. All of everything that I said tonight, listen, before I lose you, I can, I start to get that look in your eyes. I can see when you start to glaze over, um, the, the, it, it, it's all covered in this one thing, an eternal perspective an understanding and, and a belief and a daily walk that one day you're going to stand face to face with Jesus. Do you believe that? The Bible's clear that and we're going to study this on Sunday that you're going to face a thing that's called the Bema seat of Christ. It's a judgment for believers based on your good works. Everything that you've done for Christ will go through a fire and will be tried with fire. And, and Jesus says everything that's wood, hay, and stubble as it goes through the Bema seat and that the judgment of Christ for believers that it will be burned up if it's wood, hay, and stubble. But if it's gold, silver, and precious jo- precious stones. What does fire do to gold, silver, and precious stones? It refines them. It makes them better. And they'll come out the other side better and unscathed. And that is going to be your reward that Jesus talked about. Store up for yourself, not treasures on earth, but in heaven where we're going to preserve them, basically where rust doesn't rust and moths don't eat and thieves don't steal, right? And so, so, but just living our lives with what Colossians teaches as an eternal perspective. That every day you understand that, that the, the, the things that you do, the things that happen to you, the things that the reason why you are and that you be and that you serve Christ is because it's all preparation for eternity. When, when you think of it just like in a common sense type of, of parentheses, it, 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 it's so radical that it, should, it really should move us all, right? Just in the common sense parentheses is this. If, if you could have... I don't know. If you like money, okay, let's use money. You could have 10 cents or you could have $10 trillion. Which do you choose? Okay, if you like money, right? If you like money. Now, if you're just the most humble person on the planet and $10 trillion would just ruin my life, I'll take the 10 cents. Okay, that's not what I'm talking about. Okay, so if you, if you live, if you live in this flesh, and a, and a good number is 70 right now, 
right? Because the Bible says that it's given to a man 70 years to live. Anything after that's a gift. A generation is, is, is most likely around 70 years. You could say give or take, but average lifespan about 70 years. So if you live 70 years on planet Earth and you live 70 trillion years in heaven, what, what do you want to invest in? What, where, where's the value? You, you, and, and because eternity doesn't have a, a number that you could put on it, you really can't even do that, 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 that simple math of, of where it's more important. But living every day, understanding that, that this life is preparation for a day that I'm going to meet Jesus and a day that, that I'm going to live for all eternity in Jesus's kingdom. So what's important then? Somebody who took your parking space out in the car, out in the parking lot, you know, you walk in and someone's sitting in your seat and you're like, that's just it. I had enough. Sunday started bad enough already, and now somebody's sitting in my seat. I'm going home. You know, like the, the little things that, that we get so twisted about are the things that are not the, where, where we lose the, the, the importance of what is important and where we are as Christ followers. So, um, yeah, that had nothing to do with 2 Samuel, huh? I was just going to give you guys a little bit of what was on my heart right now, but thank you, Dan. Uh, well, let's take a minute. We got uh, 10 minutes until uh, we're going to do communion tonight. And so we're going to receive communion tonight, and um, I, I want you guys to, I, I'm going to cover just this, because I think I can do chapter 7 pretty quickly, but um, I, I want us to tonight, you know, um, just kind of reflect on some of those things as Christ followers, that there, there is a real discipleship, but everything that we give for Christ is, is the only thing that's going to last. That which we do for Christ is, is the only thing that's going to last in life. It's the only thing that's valuable. It's the only thing that's going to matter. And, and the reality is we should all be motivated that, that on, on a certain day, and, and, and you know what, like we talk a lot about, um, we've been talking a lot about now about being rapture ready. That's where we are in the, in the Gospel of Matthew on Sunday mornings, is being rapture ready. That's what um, I think is very clear that Jesus is teaching through Matthew 25, the latter half of 24. Over and over and over again, we're getting these parables and these stories in this context where, where in, in just the, the skinny in, in, in on the surface, and there's so much there, but on the surface, we, we could all just read it as a child to gather that, that, that it's telling us to be ready, to be rapture ready. And, and so we've been making a, a big emphasis on living your lives in such a way that you're rapture ready. But, you know, as big of a point as it is to be rapture ready, how many of you guys are promised tomorrow? Nobody? Nobody's promised tomorrow. So just, just as important, whether the rapture happens Tomorrow or in a hundred years, I guarantee you what's not going to happen in a hundred years is you're not still going to be here. And, and so you want to be ready, whether it's for the rapture or it's for a bus to hit you, um, being ready for the soon return or the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Because whether you go in the rapture or whether you die here of, of natural or other causes, you're going to be standing before going to be a blink in the eye the bible says that that this world is as the grass grows and fades that it, it as the flowers grow and you know god uses that in the bible as an example that this life is 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 fading fast this life is just but a but a vapor and before you know it it's it's over and then only what you did in this life will last through all of eternity where we'll, we'll be with jesus through all of eternity and living every day preparing for that living for that that there's a cost of that that there's a there's an appreciation and an awe factor that, of the invitation that, that God gave you to come and be a part of his kingdom. So I just want to reflect on that tonight as we receive communion. Um, we'll do that in a matter of about 10 minutes. At 820, um, we'll, we'll have the worship team come up and uh, get us ready for communion. But let's go over chapter 7 really quickly um, in Second uh, Samuel. So I had you open your Bibles to it, but let's check it out. Um, it says, Now as it came to pass, King was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in the house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent, inside tent curtains. Then Nathan said to the king, Go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So Nathan the prophet was just super, super stoked. Now David at this point, he is 50 years old. He, he had um, lived a, a, a very productive and, and busy life. David was a warrior and a conqueror. And as you guys know, David is somebody in the Bible who, who, we, who you know, talk about gift envy. 
how, how does one person get all the good gifts? And David is that person. He was, he was an artist. He was a, he was a poet. He was a, he was a psalmist. He, he, he played multiple music instruments. He could sing like Adele. He could, he could fight like, who fights well? Chuck Norris. <laughs> yes. Like Chuck. He's the only one that could give Chuck a run for his money. And and in so many different areas of his life. He was a lover. He was a worshiper. He was a fighter. He was just talented beyond belief in so many different areas of his life. And and he had comes to a place in his life where he had been busy, had been fighting, had been conquering all the kingdoms of Israel for the first time in the history and they're going to struggle with this under all the other leadership of israel but they're all united all 12 tribes under one king and everything's are going well david's conquered all his enemies all around he's reached a place later in life where it's time to to relax and to let down his guard a little bit he's got a beautiful palace built of cedar that that they built him still there to this day the remnants of the palace of david sits right on the corner of the um the old city and and when you stand on the and it's, it's it's elevated that part of the old city where David's house is one of the coolest highlights when we go to Israel. And you, you stand there, and they've built a balcony above a little movie theater about the size of this sanctuary. And you're on the roof of the movie theater, and you're overlooking, and you look down the, the side of the, um, the Temple Mount into the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives on the other side, Garden of Gethsemane as you're looking out from David's palace. Garden of Gethsemane is like right over here. This is all Mount of Olives. Kidron Valley, and then the Dome of the Rock area over here to your left. And all along this right side, off, not opposite, but um, to the south of where the, where the Garden of Gethsemane is, are houses. They're now on the opposite side are all uh, Muslim quarters. On, the, on this side is still Jewish quarters, but you can see the housetops and the roofs from all the, um, that area is there he's standing up in that exact area and he's overlooking and he sees this tent that 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 um moses built right you guys remember we studied it moses was given the instructions by god it was made from um tents or from cloth and rings and it, it was mobile because they were the nation of the children of israel were constantly moving for 40 years they would tear it down when they landed in the new camps back up and it was still the place where the ark of the covenant um was held the holy of holies was now remember last week what we studied was david went down to get the ark of the covenant they did it the wrong way it fell Uzzah went to steady it Uzzah died david got upset they left it there in the house of obed edom a couple months later david got into the word he read he found out the right way to go get it they went back they they got it he was dancing they removed six steps they would stop and sacrifice and worship and dance and they bring it back to jerusalem remember last week david's wife was there michael and she was bitter and upset because he was dancing undignified in his in his chonies and his wife beat her and she was mad because he was in his underwear dancing before the ladies and um but the the ark of the covenant is back it's it's in this place and david is looking at it and david gets excited and he has an idea and he says i want to build god a house and he calls the prophet Nathan at the time, and Nathan comes in. And Nathan, just being the, 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 the spiritual advisor to the king and for the nation of Israel, he's super pumped like anybody would be if his king wanted to do something, you know, really spiritual, you know. And, and so he, he's thinking, wow, David's thinking godly things, and, you know, he's super blessed that the Lord has, that the king has God on his mind. And he doesn't even really pause and seek the Lord or find out God's will. He just gets super excited and he says, oh, David, do all that is in your heart and super pumped. So he tells David, yeah, go for it, man. You can build God a house. The verse four, it says, but it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go, hey, you, Nathan, uh, we got to talk. He says, guess what? You can say off with your head if you want. You get to go tell David, thus says the Lord, would you build a house for me to dwell in, for I have not dwelt in a house since the time I was brought, since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever have I moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoke a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel? Why have you not built me a house or a cedar? 
of cedar. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord God of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a great name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people and I will plant them and they will dwell in a place on their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously. Since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. And so that's the the uh, major, major um, point of this chapter and story. Super powerful prophecy there. Now, first thing I just want to point out is that in verse 7 it says that um, whom I commanded to shepherd my people. So David as a king was called to shepherd God's people. And that's, that's the call of, of servant leadership. That's, that's a model that we get biblically for how, as any of us who lead in the body of Christ, are called by God to lead. Jesus is an example, right? In the Last Supper, when Jesus girds himself as a servant, and he gets down and he literally washes the disciples' feet, and when he's done, he lets them wash each other's feet, and he tells them, as I have done for you, you also do for one another. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve, to give my life a ransom for many. And Jesus led with the same heart, of a shepherd. Well, David, who's a type of Jesus, right? Who's um, the son of Jesus? Um, um, he he here is called by God to lead his people as a king. But again, God shares that the leadership that God wants for um, his people is that we shepherd the flock of God. And as a shepherd, you know, it, it, it's um, there's a lot of responsibility in shepherding and leading as a shepherd. One of the responsibilities is you have to kill wolves. The responsibility that sheep don't like. Sheep don't like to see their um, their shepherd kill wolves. But if the shepherd loves the people, then he has to run the wolves off, or the wolves will eat the people. And so, um, but uh, that's that's just the, the the rule. And then as we get down to verse eleven, he says, "I will make you a house." So what's amazing is that God says, "Go and tell King David." We find out later that God says, "Because David was a man of war."